do you manage basically the dark side of entrepreneurship? Oh, man. Um, Today, my guest is Ariana Pereja. She has over 18 years experience in entrepreneurship and investment. She successfully started, operated, and exited three businesses. She is an alumnus of the George Washington University School of Business, and she currently serves as president and co-founder of the Pereja Family Foundation. So quick backstory, my parents were political refugees. I was the anchor baby. I fell into entrepreneurship more out of necessity. And then teenage girl, really want a pair of Nikes. And I see $32.99 on clearance at Marshalls. So I get excited, I go home, I get my report card out, I put it on my poster board, and I pitch my dad as to why he should buy me these shoes. Did you get the shoes? Of what did you learn raising money? Gosh. Um. Welcome to Success Story. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Now, if you enjoy Success Story, you're going to love some of the other podcasts in the podcast network. One of them, or one of my favorite, is the Hustle Daily Show. It's hosted by four dynamic hosts, Zachary Crockett, Jacob Cohen, Rob Litterst, and Julia Bennett-Ryla. Now, they speak about a ton of different engaging, offbeat business topics, tech topics. Uh, one of the most recent ones I tuned into was their episode about Amazon pausing HQ2. And I can assure you, it's all informative, but it's a blast to listen to. They cover a ton of different topics. They covered the rising cost of dating, AI news, America's obsession with air fryers. Trust me, you do not want to miss it on this show. It's a perfect way to keep up on the latest news while enjoying lighthearted comedic takes, entertaining spins on things. So please subscribe to The Hustle Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Today, my guest is Ariana Pereja. She has over 18 years experience in entrepreneurship and investment. She successfully started, operated, and exited three businesses. Her expertise lies in recruiting, training, and growing enterprise sales teams while maximizing margin and reducing cost of acquisition. She is an alumnus of the George Washington University School of Business, and she currently serves as president and co-founder of the Pereja Family Foundation. The foundation is dedicated to providing disadvantaged women and minorities with a career in tech. Now, as a mentor for the Venture uh, Mentoring Team and Score.org, Ariana is committed to fostering the South Florida startup community. Her extensive knowledge and experience has led her to speak at renowned industry conferences and establishments such as DevCon, Consensus, IT Expo, and top universities. She shares her insights on technology, entrepreneurship, and fundraising, and also serves on the board of minority-led startups. Yeah, so I can't pinpoint one thing, but what I can share is four lessons that I learned in early in childhood that really set me up to who I am. So quick backstory, my parents were political refugees. I was the anchor baby. And I fell into entrepreneurship more out of necessity. So I'm in second grade. I come home from school, and my mom opens my book bag, and there's just a wad of cash. And she's like, what is this? And what it was was that I was purchasing four cookies for a dollar from the gas station in the morning. And then during lunch, I'd walk around, and I'd scout to see who had, like, a healthy packed lunch. And I was selling these cookies for a dollar each or two for five. And that's when I understood the power of supply and demand. And then, teenage girl, I really want a pair of Nikes, right? And I see $32.99 on clearance at Marshalls. And so 
I get excited. I go home. I get my report card out. I put it on my poster board, and I pitch my dad as to why he should buy me these shoes. They're two ninety nine shoes at Marshalls. Yeah, you're I'm like, pitching your dad. They're 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 on clearance. Um, you know, I, I'll get better grades in PE. Yeah, the other yeah. girls won't tease me, so I'll concentrate on my work. And he goes, you know what, kid? Okay, get in the car. Let's go. And that was the moment I understood the power of a good pitch. And so we're driving, and we get to the shopping center, and I look up, and I don't see Marshalls. I don't see Foot Locker. I see Payless. <laughs> now, I don't know if you have Payless in Canada. Yeah, we have Payless, yeah. Okay, yeah, so yeah. you know what Payless <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, I know what Payless is. <laughs> and they don't have, like, the, the best of the best of the best there either. No, and so... Um, like any sensible teenage girl, I went into a full-on meltdown um, publicly, and <laughs> that's when I understood the power, I want you know, of, of handling rejection, right? Uh, the importance. Why of did it. your dad bait and switch you? <laughs> 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 it was yeah, it, that's my dad. So <laughs> the next morning, I wake up. And I'm like, you know what? My pitch wasn't the problem. My dad was the problem. And I went and I knocked on every single door in that entire shopping center, including Payless, and I pitched them on why they should hire me so that I could get these shoes. And that was the day that I understood the importance of persistence. And Did you, did you get the shoes? Of, no. You know, I, I got the job, of course, yeah. but I did not get the shoes because when I went back to Marshall's, it was already sold. And I'm just, I was too frugal to go to Foot Locker and pay full price. <laughs> I love that. Have you, okay, so, you know, as you as you go through your story, um, a lot of great, oh, that was three. Oh, well, yes. No, that was four. Was that so, four? so, supply and demand, yes. um, the power of a good pitch, yeah. handling rejection. Oh, sorry, and persistence. And then persistence. But that led me into, so after high school, I got into real estate. And um, I actually met my husband at a deal, closing a deal. And shortly after, we decided to move in together personally and professionally. And when we moved in together professionally, it was into this 2,000-square-foot scrappy little office that I like to call the Pareja Incubator. <laughs> and it was the reason why I call it that is because we were running so many different companies simultaneously out of this one office. Uh, we had an event management company that was named number one in D.C. by Condé Nast with government contracts that I later sold to a competitor. We had a real estate team. Uh, first, first company that you sold? Yes. Okay. Then we had a real estate company that um, was named by Keller Williams as the number one producing team in the world. We were constantly you know, featured on Wall Street Journal for our production. We did 4,000 transactions over a billion dollars of closed business, sold that to Compass in 2017. Then we had Washington Capital Partners, which we started with our best friend, Danny. And that went on to do great things. Um, it is the largest private lender in the mid-Atlantic that has, uh, they did last year, 380 millions in loans originated, uh, 1.7 billion since its inception, and about 25 million a year in revenue. Uh, and then, of course, Remind. Remind, which was our tech company that also started out of this incubator. Um, and the, that was the tech company that was to improve the daily workflow life of a realtor. There's over a million realtors that have access to the platform. Uh, we raised over 48 million in venture capital. 
uh, sold that to a conglomerate of four of our customers in October of 2021. And on top of all of these different companies, and which, by the way, there was definitely some in there in that incubator that failed miserably that you'll never see on my LinkedIn. <laughs> well, I was going to say, because you're, you, it sounds like you go into real estate and then you you find your husband and then all of a sudden like you're just rolling out companies like it's nobody's business but that's not really the case like there's always a lot of like success but a lot of failure too oh tons so of failure. i mean what do you think i'm also curious just to sort of unpack your state at that point in your life what do you think led to the successes because you didn't did you have corporate experience did you have no. you didn't get an mba no what was the what was the business acumen that made uh, you successful it was just grit that's, I mean, both of us, we were just, it was just grit. It was just grit. It was like, let me try this. I fail. So what? I get up and I try again. I try another company. It fails miserably. So what? We get up and we try again. It was just a constant effort, constant effort. And the and we both worked like a hundred hours a week. Like it was so you were, you were selling homes or you were so real estating in what capacity to like sort of fund some of these as well. I'm trying to understand like the- Okay, so the, so the bulk, uh, so there was more to the story. So in, on top of all the different businesses that we were owning, we were principals in over 100 real estate deals. Um, 68 of those properties were just me, my husband, and our business partner, Danny, and then the rest we had outside investors. But what we were doing, so in 2008, timing is everything. Mm -hmm. 2008 was a big crash. 2010 is really when you started to see all the good deals hit the market. And so we were purchasing properties for about 260, 280, putting 100K into it, and then listing it back onto the market for 500K with a four to six month turnaround time, about 30% spread. And like, that like doesn't even exist anymore. But the timing on that was incredible. Um, and so we learned a lot through that process. We learned that there wasn't that many private lenders in the area, um, aside from just a couple guys that were extremely unprofessional and you call them, they would just hang up. And so that, that kind of idea spun what now So you is solved the problem Capital that you Partners. were experiencing yourself. Yeah, it was always like about solving problems. Like, and then same with Remind. We were trying to solve a problem with Remind, and that was that we couldn't get data all in one place. So if you're a realtor in the United States, you have access to what's called an MLS. And the MLS is where you list and sell properties. But you have to go to several different platforms just to gather the data. So we were trying to solve this problem of with Remind of, of getting better access to data. And so uh, we called CoreLogic and Black Knight, which are the two largest data providers in the country. And we said, okay, we want data on these counties that we were servicing. And they told us a number that would like make you want to throw up. <laughs> like, okay, we can't afford that. <laughs> we were doing okay, but not that good. And um, so uh, our business partner at the time, he found out that Restly, which is owned by Zillow, mm -hmm. was having this 24-hour hackathon. And so went there with they went with their two, pro two programmers. And whoever won this 24-hour hackathon would have an open API to all of the public record data in the country. That's huge. That's enormous. Of course. Yeah, exactly. So we actually won the hackathon. And so the panel of judges for this hackathon were, you know, it was like the number two Z guy at Zillow. There was uh, Alex Perillo was out there, uh, former CEO of Realogy, some other MLS figureheads. 
and came back. That was November of 2015. And it was like, okay, so this is pretty cool. This is pretty big. Let's show it to a couple different companies. And again, so we still had our real estate team that was highly producing Mm -hmm. and that was cash flowing a lot of these other businesses because Washington Capital Partners didn't turn a meaningful profit for the first four years. Um, And so, you know, we showed it to Keller Williams and they were like, okay, we want to buy it and showed it to Realogy. We're like, okay, mm, this is interesting. We may want to buy it. And so that was when we're like, okay, this is a huge opportunity, one. Uh, two, is this something that we want to just sell to one company or do we want to level out the playing field and let every realtor have access to this regardless of what brokers they're with? And so that opportunity kind of set the tone as to why we sold all these other companies and kind of tried to focus on Remind because we saw that as like the big picture. Um, and so... To, to go on, to go on from that, uh, you know, we built our MVP, which by the way, we did not take a single dollar of outside capital until we had, a, a, say three letters of intent and we had put in $650,000 of our own money into it. So, you know, I, in, nowadays I do a lot of mentoring, um, for startups and whenever I see a founder pitch something and they, they don't even have their MVP built out, their first prototype, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, if you can't do that, why are you here asking for funding? Like, it, it, like, it, it blows my mind when so I, I see I that. So I want to ask you something on that point because that's a very interesting conversation. So when somebody is earlier on than you were, because you, there's, you, were, you were making good money and you were working and operating in an industry for a while and you saw a pain point and you solved a pain point in an industry that was more or less a legacy industry. And like, that's my favorite version of entrepreneurship because your success rate is so much higher than if you don't know an industry and you're trying to solve for a problem as an industry outsider, right? That's a very difficult thing. But if you're an industry insider, those are the most successful entrepreneurs. I'm sure Absolutely. if you looked at the data, it's like, instead of like, a, what is it, the classic 10% uh, win rate or success rate and a 90% failure rate, it's probably inverse of that or something akin to that, right? Because you really know what you're solving for. But not all entrepreneurs can put in $650,000 into their own MVP either, right? right? So when somebody comes to you, how do you help them if they are super ambitious, they're graduated, or maybe they're working their first job, they're making a little bit of money, but they obviously don't have you know half a million or more, um, and they're asking, you know, for a seed round or, or friends or family, angel check, whatever it is. I, I have my opinions about how to yeah, deal with yeah, that. Yeah. But how would you suggest they they navigate? Um, you know, find a co-founder that can put some money down. I mean, find a co-founder that can put some money down, raise it, figure it out. Go get three jobs, like get a part time job with a high commission opportunity potential figure it out like that that's just my opinion i know there's several incubators out there that that's just my opinion i I actually don't disagree with you i would also say uh, an added point is if you're a non-technical co-founder find a technical co-founder and then they can actually build it for no cost and just equity and then i mean like you can go to like i think y combinator has like a a co-founder matching resource, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And there's like a few other ones like that. But I actually agree with you. I just don't think people are, um, uh, they don't 
they don't know where to find the proper help to build something. So then they default to give me some money to build something. I don't even know if it works. Yeah. Yet. And, and that's just, and then your so valuation is going to be shit. It's going to be a toxic gonna, relationship with the VC. Yeah. It's going to be very bad. It's going to be very bad. And, and the, the fact of the matter is, is like, if you can't even do that simple step that you just mentioned of, I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. 
available nationally. Look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Finding another team member to bring on the team, give them a little, mm. some, some equity to have them build it out. If you can't do that simple thing, how are you going to solve all your other problems? That's fair. That's a valid point. <laughs> like, yeah, like, that's, that's a very valid point because there's going to be a lot of them. There's yeah. going to be a lot of problems. Um, okay, so uh, let's talk about, I mean, we can. there's a lot of different things we can go into. Um, I think that, like, th- like, the last thing that you sort of spoke about is is exiting your last business. And I think that's a, and, and we can talk about, like, the growth and all the different things that you sort of teach over to people now. But, I mean, that was the most relevant point in your life that you've dealt with more or less recently. So... Um, let's talk about your own personal journey in like growing, scaling, exiting a business. What are just some thoughts on how to prep your business for an exit? Um, what are the things you should think about when you're exiting? Are you even happy with how you've gone through your various exits? Are the things that you would like do differently if you, if you had the chance with any of the businesses you've sold? Yeah, I think when it comes to selling your business, you really have to ask yourself three major questions. And the first one is Why? Why are you really selling your company? Is it because you're burnt out? Is it because you're bleeding money? 
Is it because your co-founder's pushing you out? Is it because your investor wants you out? Is it because your um, biggest customer is basically saying, I'm tired of paying this invoice every month. You're too expensive. I just want to buy you and just own your tech. Mm -hmm. So figure out the why. And you, I know you've interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs, and I'm sure there have been entrepreneurs on this show that have said, you know, I, I regretted selling my company because now I'm, I'm bored and I don't know what to do with myself. Now, <laughs> after, after the event, yeah, yeah for sure. after the event, exactly. Yeah. Um, because the reality of it is you don't know what you're going to do after, and in that moment you're so burnt out that you just are like, I just want to sell it. But if you have a good operating business and it is cash flowing and you're burnt out, that's not a good reason to sell your business. That's a good reason to take a break. That's a good reason to go maybe, I don't know, vacation for five, six months, find someone to run the day-to-day -day mm -hmm. of it, um, add it to your, just think of it as your investment portfolio, give them, uh, whoever you hire, some equity. And that's a good reason. Um, but the second thing that you want to think about is who, right? Who are you selling your company to? You need to always think about if you are going to exit, like what is the most, what makes the most sense strategically? You know, a lot of people, especially with service-based businesses, um, they'll get purchased by a competitor, right? And, and that's hard for an entrepreneur because uh, the last 10 years, they've been at war with this person. Yeah. But if they look at who makes sense to purchase them, it's probably going to be a competitor. And that's hard to deal with your ego, but it could be. And then the other question of who is if you're going, like, for example, you have a, a tech startup and, and now you want to exit, finding the right investment banker makes all the difference, mm -hmm. right? Because you want to go after and, and find out and start to build a relationship with an investment banker way before you even start to think to sell so that when you get to that process, they have your best interest. I mean, obviously, they're always going to have your best interest. They're a professional. Um, but you want to go after and find that investment banker that has sold companies like yours on a multiple that you want. Right? That's smart. Um, now. And then when? Yes. And then, well, I was going to say one other point, too, because that's yeah. it's it's good advice, but it's counterintuitive to what a lot of people teach entrepreneurs, which is when you're building something, build it to sell. Right. And then have uh, have some sort of strategy in mind so that if you're taking on money at any point, an investor understands where your vision for the company is. So does that advice change if you're taking on investor money? No, that that. I mean, yes and no. Yes, I mean, obviously, if you're taking on investor money that, and you have a growth-based business, yeah. your plan is to sell. You know, I'm, I'm of the mentality that I've done service-based and growth-based businesses, you know, small SMBs. It's, it's a different kind of exit. But it plays into, it actually plays into your mindset about taking on money as well. So yeah. you're not even taking on money unless you are trying to transition into a growth-based business Absolutely. where you're hitting these monumental milestones. Absolutely. So that's the whole difference between everyone who... It, there's it's so confusing because there's so much conflicting advice yeah there's people i mean you listen to uh, like the sharks on shark tank which are all very successful entrepreneurs in their own right and i think damon john is always about opm like other people's money other people's money never use your own money so you hear that and then you're like shit well i have to find other people's money because i don't want to burn my own money and then there's another there's another way to build the business so i think it, it's a, it's it's hard because there's so much and entrepreneurship is already hard as hell like already yeah. and there's all these different conflicting ideas because you're right and he's right 
in different circumstances. And it's up to the entrepreneur to sort of figure out who's right when and who's right for them. Mm -hmm. And that is the most confusing thing. So if, if you were going to, if I was an entrepreneur and I was looking at all these different pieces of advice and, you know, Damon John on Shark Tank saying use OPM and then you're saying actually build an MVP and then take on money if you have to grow, but don't take on money. How does that entrepreneur understand what, what they need to do? Like what it, it, it they figure out their goals? It depends on, on, on their industry, depends on their business, right? So for example, if you're going after consumers, you need to raise money because going after consumers is really, really hard, uh, especially on a, like a national scale. You're not going to be able to bootstrap that. Um, I mean, you could, but it, it would be really, really hard. Um, and then, you know, if you're going up against publicly traded companies, for example, like in our, our case, we could not, we didn't have the luxury to bootstrap um, Remind. Like our competitors were publicly traded companies that were coming after us every single day saying that they're going to squander us. Mm -hmm. um, and so the only thing that set us apart was speed, was just pure speed. That was the only thing that could really set us apart at that time. And so we needed to raise capital so that we could hire the best of the best in the country and just deploy quicker and faster than everybody else. And, and uh, what did you learn? That was the only business you ever raised for, correct? Outside correct. of outside of literally buying properties. And yeah. You, okay. So what did you learn raising money? Oh, gosh. Um, that's the first thing. That <laughs> even like before we recorded, I was saying how we met was at a tech yeah. conference. And that's the first thing that you mentioned to me because I was going through a raise myself, which I'm literally yeah. still going through. And that like it's a testament to how long some of this shit can take because I was what? Like almost a year and a half. That was about, yeah, that was yeah. at Emerge last year. Yeah. So, so, so it's been like an ongoing thing in my life but then you mentioned like don't take on money if you don't have to so obviously that comes from <laughs> some stress and trauma it does 100 <laughs> percent. so so what happened or what or what would you do differently oh gosh um don't take such a high valuation um the thing about vcs well let me rephrase that so the thing about taking capital just in general is that once you take on other people's money um, it's no longer your company. It's everyone's company now. Mm -hmm. You don't get to um, act like a dictator anymore. <laughs> and, 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 and it's, it's a democracy, and, and I'm just, um, yeah. So taking on VC capital as well is, is really tricky, especially if you've never done it before, because you don't understand how things work yet. And a lot of times... Not all VCs, but a lot of times VCs, what they'll do is they'll give you this ridiculously high valuation and they'll give you X amount of runway and they'll give you these milestones and they'll say, okay, well, if you hit these milestones by this time, then we'll fund you again, yada, yada, yada. But they know <laughs> that you probably won't hit those milestones. Mm -hmm. And so now it becomes this dependency that they've built. Right. So you as the entrepreneur, you don't hit these milestones and then you have this value. Then then they're like, oh, well, OK, we'll give you money again, but we're going to take pre preferred shares. And by the way, we want all the board seats and we want this and we want that. And they're in this position of power to negotiate whatever they want. And what are you going to do? What's your choice? You're either going to say, no, I'm not taking that term sheet. And then you you your lights go out and mm -hmm. you go bankrupt or you just 
say, okay, I guess this is what we're doing. And, and you just sign on the dotted line and you just move forward. So my suggestion would be if you have to raise capital, um, angel investors are the way to go. Definitely angel investors. Um, cause the thing about VCs, they have so many people in their portfolio company. And unless you're that one unicorn, they're not going to pay attention to you and they're not going to care to help you. And, you know, a lot of times founders think that, oh, if I raise venture capital, the second I do it, I'll be replaced and they'll get into the CEO and they'll get really involved. Actually, no, that's not the case at all. They don't really get involved at all. Um, that's more growth and private equity. Mm-hmm. They get more involved. And so, you know, if you're going to be doing it all on your own anyways, you might as well just figure it out with some angel investors that will play friendly when it comes to, to raising again. And um, yeah, and, and not everyone's experience is that, but that was my. No, but yeah, you have to be, you have to be very careful because some like venture capitalists are professional investors. Yeah. And I think the one thing that I pulled out of from what you just said is they'll, they'll play onto um, your emotions about a high valuation because you'll think as an entrepreneur, I want to get a high valuation, so I give up less of my company. Like that's that's the immediate entrepreneur mindset when it comes to raising money. But then that screws you in the future because if you think about how much money you actually have to make to make those investors happy. Exactly. So especially at, I mean, if you look at the different rounds, right? So I, I, these are all like, these are all guesstimates. But I think for like a, a, a seed, it's like they're looking for like 100x. And then like a, a series A, maybe like a 30X and then like a series B, C, D, it could be like a 5X, 6X, 10X, whatever it is. But if you think about raising at, you know, if you want to make a hundred X on, on $10 million, like your company has to be like wildly successful. Yeah. You have to be yeah. very, 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 you have to be like very, very <laughs> successful. Right. Yeah. So you have to be careful what you raise at. And then there's, then you have to do down rounds in the future. And if, you have to have a huge total addressable market to really yeah. hit those numbers. That's true. Right? So know the TAM. And then also, if you think about it, um, if you are raising that much and then like that, that second term sheet that's not as favorable, well, it's super time consuming to go mm-hmm. raise money. So, yeah, they're putting money right in front of you with shit terms. But like, if you are a founder and you're raising more money from new people that you think are going to give you better terms, it's like a full time job. Oh, it 100%. Is, is. And if you don't have money for an investment banker because you're trying to keep the lights on and pay salaries yep. for another three months, you don't have the 10 or 15K retainer for the investment banker that can go help you with this at the same time. Right. So it's just all around very stressful. Um, I've never I mean, raising money has a place, but the entrepreneurs that I know that are the happiest have never taken on money because they have all their equity. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they, they don't have the stress and they don't have the stress and yeah. they, they didn't feel like an employee in their own company that they built. Um, so after, after you exit the business and this is going to be, and we'll go back into like building it and, and different lessons for scaling and sales and marketing. But after you exit the business, um, what is your, cause I, I've done this with a few people. I did this with, um, uh, the CEO of Tiger 21. I had a conversation with Joseph Martin about like life after exiting a business. So for you, after exiting a business, what is what is like the the shift? What do you what do you focus on? Um, what are some of the realities that you're dealing with after selling something? Yeah, so it's tough because when you're in the thick of it and you're exhausted and burned out, all you want to do is sell, and you don't. You're so exhausted. You're like, oh, whatever. I'll just build another company. Mm-hmm. I'll just be an investor full time. I'm done with this. And then, you know, you, you play on the beach for a while and you get bored <laughs> and then you realize that, Hey, yeah, you can invest full time, but 
even that can get boring after a while. Consulting can get boring after a while. Um, and so you don't really think about, well, you know, when you tell yourself, oh, I'll just start another company. It's like, okay, but everyone that you know that just invested in your last company is either still waiting on that return or maybe mm-hmm. they didn't like the return. And so finding capital could be hard or maybe you don't want to do that again, right? But also you might not have the liquidity yet from the sale of your company or it might not go the way you had planned and intended to yeah. um, to start something else. And then you're also in a different place in life. By the time you start a company, grow a company, exit a company, and then um, <clears throat> start your new life, you're probably in a different place with your lifestyle than you were back then. So like, I remember I'd always be like talking to my husband, like, what? who cares? We'll just start another company, we'll just start another company. Well, fast forward six years, my kids are a little bit older. I don't want to work 100 hours a week. And I know that if I start something from zero to one mm-hmm. from the ground up, you're working 100 hours a week. And I don't, I just don't want to do that anymore. And so you really have to get really finite about what you want to do next and really think about different ways. Like if you're, if you really want to just get out of that industry, some, some I've heard founders say, I'm just done with this industry. I'm tired of it. I'm going to do something new. You can, but then... What are you going to do? Start from scratch with your career? You're going to throw those 20 years of relationships down the drain? I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, everyone is looking for the best bang for their buck right now. Companies are reevaluating their software expenses, and some are even cutting their old CRM platform bills significantly. This is why HubSpot has become the modern CRM of choice for so many growing businesses. HubSpot CRM is literally a one-stop shop with all the tools you need to grow your business. It helps you automate tedious tasks, keep track of contact info and deals, and make sure your team has access to the same data so you can better serve your customers and reach your goals. And best of all, it's easy to use and free to get started. That's right, fill your sales pipeline without blowing your budget. Get started for free at HubSpot.com. And experience and everything and you know. And experience and everything yeah. else. I mean, and then you could take on and, and look after your company sells, there's going to be people knocking on your door left and right to try to hire you. Do you really want to work for somebody else? Like, unless you're some, a different kind of person, you're now. a different kind of person now. Yeah. And it, it, unless it's a really, really cool once in a lifetime experience, you're probably not going to want to take a job. So really thinking about kind of what you're going to do next. And this is and, important to, to your point researching. about like thinking about, do you actually want to exit? And do you want to actually yeah. exit? Yeah. Like, what are you really going to do? So, so let's, let's go into it. Like what, like, cause I know you've been jumping between things now and I know that you've even like just, you know, on, on calls, you've mentioned like, oh, I'm looking at this opportunity and this opportunity and, and not a lot has stuck candidly since I've known you. Right. Yeah. And it sounds like before I met you, when I moved down here to, to Florida, like there was always something that you were working on. Yeah. And now, Leo, your husband's working on something else, and, and he actually took a job, job yeah. took a job. So for you, what do you do? What are you, what are you looking at? What do you get excited about for somebody that, and I want to frame this as a professional who is, who's killed it in her field repeatedly and now is, like, doesn't have that same purpose that you have when you're building something, but yeah. also for uh, a successful executive that has worked in a company for a long period of time and now they want to look at doing something different, right? So they've been making 
you know, three, four, 500 plus for years as C-suite. And then they try and become a consultant and then they just don't know what to do. And they're like spinning their wheels and they're very confused about where to take their career. So when you've achieved that success, like you have, or like some, because I don't just want to frame it in the entrepreneurial perspective. I think there's a lot of people that are also at crossroads in life when it yeah. comes to career. What do you do? Like, what have you tried to take on? What hasn't worked? What has worked? What do you get excited about? Yeah. Um, where do you spend your time? Where do you want to spend your time? Yeah, so right now, um, I mean, I've, I'm, I sit on a couple different boards. And so that's that's keeping me engaged, keeping me excited. And it's kind of like sort of a way to date before getting more involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd also say that, you know, my, what I want out of life has changed, right? So my definition of success has changed. And, you know, when I was younger, I defined success specifically for monetary metrics, right? And then when I got a little bit older, I defined success as recognition. And then I got a little bit older and I became a mother and have kids and, I want what every woman working mom wants, and that's life balance, right? Which, by the way, it does not exist unless you <laughs> <laughs> unless you hire proper domestic staff. It doesn't exist. Um, Even with kids, it's like yeah, your life is not like, your own anymore. It's not your own, yeah. And then now I'm at a point in a place in my life where I want to build impact. Right? And I'm in a position where I can build impact, and which is why I started my fa- family foundation. And it's I I know that businesses come and go, right? I've lived it, but my foundation will outlive me, and that legacy will go on. And my kids, regardless of what they decide to do in life later on, at least I know that they can work on that together, right? And I'm having an impact on the world. And so, you know, I, I'm still all constantly looking at different opportunities. Have I found the right one that has stuck yet? Not yet. But if, and when that comes that I get really excited, then I will take it on. But until then I'm focused on building out the legacy of my family. So let's talk about impact. So what does impact actually mean in the world of entrepreneurship and business? Yeah, so impact means different things for different people. But as an entrepreneur, you're impacting the lives of the people you employ. You're impacting the lives of the people who use your product or service. Um, And just being really passionate about that, it'll take you to all different levels and different heights. Um, But, you know, for me, my, my impact for me is like if I can just change the life of a person and, and increase their income whether that's through our um, scholarship program or through our financial literacy program that we just launched with Miami-Dade College. And I could teach somebody how to fish, essentially. Mm -hmm. That is a generational change that they'll have within their family. That is breaking the cycle of poverty that their family line has, that their legacy has been, right? And their grandfather's legacy, grandmother's legacy. So for me, it's like I'm just trying to get as many people, as many specifically women minorities, to become wealthier. And how, and how do you actually accomplish that? So it's it's entrepreneurship. Is it is it investing? Because there's so many different avenues. Oh yeah, there's so many. And, different and actually, let's actually that. describe the problem first. I think that's really important, right? So yeah. describing the problem. So, I mean, um, 
I can only speak to my own experience, but I'm sure like I was, I was very privileged growing up. I, I didn't have a, I didn't go to a shitty school. I, I, you know, I had, I had smart parents, but even that I didn't have a lot of financial education. There was no push towards investing super risk adverse, um, uh, really no focus on entrepreneurship at all in my family. Talking about money is very taboo for many cultures. It is. So I can only imagine that if uh, a well-off family did not have those conversations, people that did not have money or access to uh, great education growing up, I can only imagine that there's like zero conversation about that at all. It's, it's very stressful and it's maybe you said it's taboo, but how do we, what's the reality? Do you have like data points on, on, um, on, you know, underrepresented individuals going into entrepreneurship, building businesses, success rates? Do you have any idea about? Yeah. I mean, I, for, for sure right now, I've had some conversations and yeah. there's like pretty wild stats. There's I spoke wild to. stats like women, yeah. they, they're, less than 2% represent representation in funding. And I think uh, minorities, specifically black and Latino, is like even less than that. It is. And you know yeah. what? I've had a couple conversations. I had one one woman, Julia Borstein. Um, she's, a I think, a CNBC reporter, but now she's written a couple books. And she like did actually an investigation into uh, how much like venture funding and angel funding women received and I can't remember the number off the top Less of my head than 2%. but it was it was yeah. yeah it was but um I spoke to another another guy who I was was responsible for building a black um uh, a black entrepreneur incubator mm -hmm. and it was there was some stat like there's only been one entrepreneur one black entrepreneur in like the history of ever that's received over a million dollars in seed fund it was like something that sounds crazy to say out loud but it was something that was like holy shit that can't be right but he's like it definitely is right. And then if you look at uh, funding of, of minorities, underrepresented women, and, and every other underrepresented class, um, like really nothing has changed. No. I mean, with like black entrepreneurs, you saw, you know, for two years in 2020, 2021, you saw like a spike. Yeah. And then, and if then you actually, it just And dipped. it's like, it's it just lower. right. It actually it's, dipped yeah, lower. <laughs> it's like right fucking at the yeah. bottom, like right now. Yeah. So, I speak to a lot of awesome people that are trying to solve for this, but it's like an exceptionally hard thing to solve for, right? Because we try and solve for it the way that the way that we know existing institutions work. What I mean by that is if I'm trying to solve for helping uh, women get more funding or, or underrepresented minorities get more funding, it's okay. So how do we get, more people on the board of this venture capital firm or this family office that's going to look at some of these investment opportunities. But that's to, to fundamentally change all these organizations that invest. It's, it's, it's incredibly hard. Yeah. So is there a better way to fix this solution? Like, what are you trying to do? Like financial education, literacy, that's one way. But even in terms of um, helping women secure investment, how do we do that? Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a tough one that we're, I think, no one has figured out yet because the problem is is the people with the capital just don't care enough to make those initiatives um you know there's so many companies that i've talked to that they'll ask me you know as a woman as, as a woman of color as a woman of minority um what can we do to expand um you know diversity and inclusion within our organizations like well for one you could start promoting women to C-suite <laughs> like that. That's the first, but like representation really matters because what happens is when there's a woman or a minority in the C-suite position or on the board, 
they're basically showing everybody else in the organization that, hey, look, it's possible. And they're also leading the example to everybody else in the organization that we should have, we should consider this more often. Um, and very few companies are actually doing it. Uh, Anywhere Real Estate, which is formerly called Realogy, they're like the only organization that I've dealt with because we deal with a lot of um, corporate employer partners for our foundation to get the students hired once they graduate. And that it, they do such a good job with this. I mean, I remember getting on a call and it was like the most diverse Zoom group I had ever seen in my entire life. Everyone from the CTO, the CIO, um, head of people, just like VP of engineering, it was all women or minorities. So is it possible? Yes, but I think it starts from the top down of having <clears throat> that representation in the first place. And, and to your point, I was going to actually ask you like some of the pro some of the things that you encounter, but you didn't even raise money for a lot of your businesses. Like you actually didn't go through the, the, you didn't go through the shit of having to always find VC money at an early stage. Like you had massive success. And then of course, yeah, if you put $650,000 of your own money into it, then venture capitalist is going to be like, oh, okay, well, well, maybe there's not, something there. Not but. to mention, so before we even approached the VC, we had already raised um, $6 million between friends and family in a private office. So we had already had raised $6 so, million. But your, you, your bar is like so, so – like it was yeah. insanely high. Yeah. Like that's not Normal. good <laughs> to say that the, that the <laughs> bar has to be yeah. that high to raise money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so when you're talking case. to, who do you work with? You work with founders, you work with individuals like in jobs, like who's like the person you work with most who, who you're trying to like educate or, or help? Um, so we have several different programs within yeah. our foundation, but, um, you know, we, we do work with a lot of founders in terms of mentorship of that are seeking series A funding. Um, we work with, and, and they're typically already, um, they already have an MVP built out. Mm -hmm. They've are, come from a, an accelerator program. We do that work with the VMT. Um, then we have our scholarship program, which basically it takes anyone who's making 50K or less, and we put them through a six-month upskilling boot camp so that they learn the skills to become an SDET. And so a software developer uh, engineer. Oh, what is that? Sorry. A software developer engineering test. That's oh, okay, okay, title. gotcha. Um, and so SDETs are typically, you know, in the DC area, cause that's where the school's based in that area, you can get a job offer entry level, uh, you know, hundred K we've had yeah. students get up to 120 K. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, that's how we're kind of helping in the community and working. With and, it. and do you think, so if you're, if you're speaking to somebody who's, um, maybe in high school and, and they're looking at their career, what's, what's the advice? How should they look at their career? How should they map it out? Is, is their career, uh, who, who's, who's, who is underrepresented and, and they want to, you know, they want to achieve whatever they can achieve and you're going to give them the best advice. Is it become financially literate? Is it to go through a program like this to learn specialized skills? Is it start your own business? Like there's so many alternative career paths yeah. that somebody can take on. So how do you point somebody in the right direction so they have the highest chance of being successful in spite of existing infrastructure that doesn't support them? I think, well, first and foremost, financial literacy is important. Um, when we were launching, um, well, we were about to launch our program with Miami-Dade College, but when we were doing the research, we had asked over 200 students, what is it that they would want to learn a continuing education course? And we had different, you know, multiple 
choice questions. And the number one thing that people want to know is financial literacy, but they called it adulting. And so, and so <laughs> that's, that's how we came up with our adulting course. Um, and, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, McKinley just put out a report that 50, only 57% of Americans are financially literate, meaning they understand how credit works, they understand how to plan for retirement. That's only ha like half of America. Like that's, that's, that's insane. That's insane. That's only saying that's only half of us. And, and the report showed that it didn't matter of the socioeconomic status. Obviously, of course, those that with a higher wage had, you know, but it, it's, it's affecting everybody. How is this still a thing in 2023? This doesn't make any sense to me. I, I don't know. But, you know, when we had our, um, we used to have these uh, brown bag paper lunches once mm -hmm. a month with all of our engineers who were millennials and they made very high salaries and that was also their number one request during these like lunch and learns of like how do i manage my money how do i invest my money so i think at the core financial literacy is the most important thing anyone of any age should understand and secondly, I would tell a high school student, yes, if you are very passionate about something, get granular on the skill sets. We actually had a young high school um, student take our program in the evenings while she was in her senior year of high school. And so she maintained her uh, GPA, uh, a high GPA, and then was taking our course in the evening. She graduated from the school. I think it was like June 7th. And mm -hmm. then the very next day, June 8th, she already had a job at a publicly traded company. So that's, a, that's awesome. As a, yeah. I that's mean, with, super, with no super college awesome. debt. Yeah. I mean, her parents were extremely happy, uh, of course. But yeah, I mean, so if you can get the um, if you could get the education on the skill like that you want to go after. But mm -hmm. that, it's hard, right? Because most high school students, they don't know what they want to do yet. Right. No. So. And I and I don't I mean, if you think about what happens in what happens in high school. Right. So you have a guidance counselor that's giving you career advice. And I mean, you know, guidance counselor is good for you. But do you actually know all the different things that somebody can actually do in their life? No. Like could a guidance that. counselor have spoken to you and have told you to build all the things that no, you build? No, definitely not. No. Does yeah. a guidance counselor know how to invest? Like, <laughs> I mean, like. Like, let's be let's be real. Like, these are the people. So I think actually I was thinking about it, just as you mentioned it. I'm like, why is there why is there so much financial illiteracy? And I think I don't think that it's it's really gotten worse. I just think that the job climates change. And what I mean by that is if you look to our parents and our grandparents, they had defined benefit and defined contribution pensions. Yeah. So you either had 70 percent of your best years until you die as your pension and you really didn't have to invest because why would you if right. you have 70 percent of your salary till you die you can obviously but not a lot of people did i know for a fact because my parents are not huge investors they invest but they're not huge investors and all very safe risk adverse jobs dad was in police and then he worked in counter uh, terrorism and i worked for the government he'll always make money yeah. when he stops working never really has to worry about investing he wants to make more fine but you don't have to worry about it then to find contribution um, that means that you have basically in a large enough company, you have X percentage of your salary going into it and it's matched by the company. And then you have people that are basically investing on your behalf. So professionals that are investing into different, different 
things based on your risk tolerance, right? So for a whole generation and, and, and previous generations, they never really had to worry that much about investing because there was always pensions lined up for them. Right. So I don't think that financial literacy was better. I don't think that our parents percentage wise maybe knew more about credit. And I don't, I don't know. This is just pulling. I think also it was like, there's been a but now you have cultural to. shift too, though. Like our parents' generation, you got married and had kids by the time you were 21 mm -hmm. and you bought a house and you settled down. Uh, our generation, not so much, right? Now, our generation's all about instant gratification. And uh, I'll lease that Porsche or BMW because yeah. I want to post about it on my Instagram. And it's it's a different cultural shift um, as well. I think that that has constituted to the problem of... of so you have like, it's like, a, it's like this problem and it's being attacked from both sides. So one, there's no more pensions. Uh, people don't stay in jobs for as long. Yeah. So, I mean, everyone's doing the gig economy. Everything's doing gig. Yeah. yeah, gig economy. So, you have no safety, security. Plus, you don't have much disposable income because you're wasting it on all this bullshit. Mm -hmm. And then that, both of those things are just squeezing people. And I don't even think that retirement, like, makes, I don't think retirement's even an option. So, if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you have no pension coming in and you're blowing all your money on dumb shit, which a lot of people do. How do you even think of retiring at 60? There is no retirement anymore. I mean, I'm not a big fan of like retirement, retirement and like the stop working and don't do anything because I'm pretty sure that's when you start to decline like intellectually and then like to slow death from there on. I'm a big proponent of that. But besides that, maybe people do want to retire. Yeah. And no one's setting themselves up for it. No so this is where the financial literacy comes in. This is where the understanding credit, understanding debt, understanding good debt, bad debt, how to use it to it's leverage. Not, even and, understanding your 401k. I mean, it was it shocked me all the time when we would give a offer letter to um, an employee and they just had no idea what their shares meant. Like, what does this mean? No, it's no very idea. confusing. It, it's, it's very confusing. And not understanding that those benefits can make or break whether or not you take a job offer. 100%. Um, so I think that actually, if I'm not mistaken, Florida is starting to mandate. I, I think that I'm sure there's similar programs like around the US, but Florida is starting to mandate um, financial education in high school. I think that was like very, very recent. 12 states are doing it now. 12 states, okay. And I guess Florida's one of them. I, I just heard that. about it because now we're down here, so I hear about the things yeah. that are happening here, but I'm, it should be a thing. It should have been a thing a it long time ago. It should have been ago. the thing the entire time. Yeah, but no, 12 states are, have now um, What do you, so out. just if people are listening, obviously some people are gonna listen to this and they're gonna say, no, I'm, I'm good. I don't need a financial education course, but other people that are listening could be like, actually that's super useful because I don't know shit. So what do you, if somebody is actually gonna go check it out and we'll link it, but what would they go to learn just so they have an idea of what they're getting themselves into? Yeah, so um, so the date is for April 29th is when it starts and we'll have the registration up on Miami-Dade College uh, website soon, but you could check us out and follow us on uh, at Pareja Family Foundation on Instagram. And then... I wasn't done yet. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> no. I thought that was like... <laughs> no. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Don't oh worry about it. <laughs> you can drop this. I, I thought, it, okay, I like looked at the time. I was like, okay, it's been like an hour. So. No, because the clock is wrong. <laughs> I told you that when we started, the clock is I know, like, but the clock started at 12, and now, now it says 148. No, it's been like 50 minutes. Okay, well, I know there's a couple more things. Anyway. Okay, and, no, but tell me, okay, first, just tell me what's in what's in the course. What's in the course, and then, listen, we'll get the Instagram socials anyways. You can drop them now if you want, yeah, halfway yeah. through. Go for it. <laughs> so um, what's in the course is that 
they will anyone who attends will will basically learn the basics and the fundamentals of credit of mm -hmm. like what's good credit what's bad credit um how to how to raise credit how to leverage your credit how to create passive income like the difference between passive and residual income and then just like an overall um overview of how to maximize like your roth roa um yeah. and your 401k and um yeah and so they'll that that will be out soon and um, we're really excited about it no that's awesome I, I i appreciate that you're doing that because that's much needed so um no what i wanted to go into um because i just put some notes down here that i thought would be like good entrepreneurial startup lessons like more like tactical things that that uh that you can teach over so i guess i mean your background is is more more in sales and marketing i guess more more sales than anything i mean you're not a, a tech co-founder you're more on like the biz dev side so let's talk about scaling up a company um good lessons for people that are just starting out so you mentioned a few things like you want to find out if you have product market fit you want to find out what you know even like what's the tan like what's the total addressable market you're selling into so you can understand the size of the opportunity good for you to know as an entrepreneur but also you know if you're trying to raise money but for somebody that say let's talk about like the first let's go from like zero to a million and then like one to ten like those are two pretty big milestones that are not and then after 10 we can leave it to someone else to tell them about that but like from zero to one how do you get your first few customers what would be your strategy if somebody's building something brand new yeah so if you want to figure out what your sales funnel is like figure out how you're going to have um where you're going to get your lead generation from so if it's a um you know and it does vary so much depending on what industry you're in it of could course. be but you look at a you look at an opportunity what is your thought process yeah so depending on the business um the figure out what can bring in the most amount of leads at the lowest cost right so cost of acquisition figuring out that piece of it uh because you could have 50 leads a month that are great leads but if they're costing you more than what you get out of it then mm -hmm. that's just a waste of time um <clears throat> and then i'd say that uh you know really maximizing joint ventures right and doing rev shares so that's low cost it brings in high volume right off the bat and you could start to build some customers so doing joint ventures with other similar something that makes sense synergically with synergistically yeah. yeah so you have like this is this would be like the b2b version of an affiliate yeah okay gotcha so you identify like the major players in your space and you're saying we'll do a rev share on this you know you have the customers we want we can fulfill um you're not going to fulfill on the product that we're offering and that's and you build these agreements so that you're more scalable day one as opposed exactly. to and we're talking about i know there's a million different business models i mean between like b2b which is i think more or less what you were doing then there's b2c and direct to consumer but the point is where's the audience yeah and how do you tap into an existing audience so that you don't have to basically build that audience from scratch yeah and that's more or less how you get your first customers how do you and for somebody starting out you know what's if if you are a b2b company it's a really smart idea as opposed to because you're not going to have money to hire a salesperson so it's going to be you no and you can you can allocate shared resources with the joint venture so, yeah yeah what would be a good deal so somebody doesn't get you know screwed on a deal what's a good rev split for a b2b product mm. that you'd be happy with it really depends like if they're if they're bringing you um if they're doing the bulk of it 
Uh, I'd say like if you kept at least 15 to 20% and if they're doing all the legwork, like throughout the venture and you're keeping 15 mm -hmm. to 20%, I think that's a good start. Everyone, I just want to take a second to thank the sponsor of today's episode, Babbel. Now, who here remembers those high school language classes that never really clicked? Doesn't matter if you're learning French or Spanish, whatever it is. Uh, I tried to learn French in high school. I can't remember any of it. I'm sure a lot of people tried to learn French, Spanish, whatever it is. The point is Babbel is solving for this. So it offers quick 15-minute lessons that fit perfectly into your busy life, and they focus on real-world conversations about travel, relationships, and business. Listen, right now, I'm trying to relearn French. I'm trying to learn Spanish because I just moved down to the U.S., and what really sets Babbel apart is that their lessons are crafted by over 100 language experts, not just AI, and they're teaching their method is scientifically proven to be effective. So you can choose from 14 languages, Spanish, French, Italian, German, and a ton of others. Their speech recognition technology helps you get your pronunciation and accent just right. And Babbel doesn't just stop at lessons. You can access podcasts, games, video stories, even live classes. And they have a 20-day money-back guarantee. So question to you. Are you ready to start your language journey with Babbel? Right now, they're setting up a special offer for all Success Story podcast listeners. When you buy a three-month subscription, you get another three months free. That's six months for the price of three. So what you're going to do, you're going to just head to Babbel.com and use promo code SUCCESSSTORY. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com code SUCCESSSTORY. Happy learning. Okay, good. Um, as you scale, what are some of the most important things to think of as you scale? Is it people? Is it uh, processes, uh, systems, playbooks? Systems, what are the things that processes. like screwed you up that you were like, shit, I should have done that differently because now I have like 25 more gray hairs because um, you've done some of those things wrong. So what were those things? Um, people. Yeah, I was I was going to say systems and processes because that is important, too. But having the right people in place, people can make or break your company. Um, toxic people can make or break your company. Identifying that early on. And, you know, when you're early in your journey as an entrepreneur, typically you'll hire just whoever has a pulse. Yeah. <laughs> <Right? laughs> whoever's interested, whoever shows interest and has a pulse. You're like, so your your friend, your cousin, your whoever, whoever, your, your friend of a friend, when really you should be hiring for people that are specifically good for that role, not just because you know and trust them. And, and that's hard when you're building a company because when you're a startup, it's very hard to convince somebody that's very specialized in what they do to leave their, you know, stable company to come join your vision mm -hmm. and that you don't know what you're doing yet. Um, so that's tough, right? It's easier to recruit a friend or family member to join you on that rocket ship. Um, so I would say focus on the people and getting people that are really specialized at what they're doing and that fit to the culture of your company and the, cult, the, the type of culture you want in your company. Um, two questions off that point. Decide how you want to take them. But first question would be, uh, how do you identify what that culture is or how do you build it from scratch when you are just trying to stay, you know, keep your head above water? Yeah. And secondly, um, the avatar of the person you hire that's going to fit into that culture and or build that culture is that person 
I, I, it's going to be a leading question because I have opinions on this, but is that person coming from, uh, from experience in the industry that you already have? Or is that person like a figure it out growth hacker kind of person? Remember we're in like the zero to one phase right now we're starting yeah. to scale. So who is, who is, cause I, I personally think, and you can debate me on this, but I personally think every time I've hired somebody who's operated in like a fortune 500 fortune 1000 oh, yeah, they, can't do it. they yeah. always fuck it up yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. that experience that is I like agree. too much because they have all these support systems in place and then they're not used to operating and on they their don't want to roll up their sleeves exactly. and get dirty so yeah, who is no. the person how do you how do you find the right person that has enough experience but isn't going to be um like ruined by the by the team and the support they had at a much larger company yeah so you don't obviously don't want to get someone from a fortune 500 company what you want to do is find someone that was maybe just like not even a managerial role, but maybe like a lead at their last company and they're just dying to get into that manager role. Mm -hmm. And so they have some, you know, big corporate experience, but at the same time, they haven't jumped that ladder yet. And by coming onto your company, you're giving them this opportunity of this title of director or manager. And, and now they have that opportunity. So they'll, they'll roll up their sleeves and get dirty with you. I love that. And then culture, you mentioned culture, culture is super important. Culture is a big buzzword that people throw around too. And I think a lot of people have a hard time defining what that is and what it isn't. So as an entrepreneur, what is culture? How do you build it? What do you focus on? Who creates it? Who maintains it? What's that? Yeah. I mean, obviously the founding team builds it, creates it and leads by example. So it's your behaviors that then the rest of the company looks up to. So if you're the type of founder that's in the office by 8 a.m. and you're not leaving till 8 p.m., you need to be completely open and upfront when you're hiring people that that's what you want. I did that all the time when I was hiring someone. I was like, hey, listen, I understand you're at your nice cushy job, but this is a startup. I get in around seven. I expect you to too. And I would say that in the interview. And if they said no, I'm like, all right, then move on because I'm not going to hire this person. And then three months down the road, we have this issue of, you know, whatever so you address those things head on i love that um when you, you set the table for expectations in the initial interview okay of what you want as you start to scale up um people are very important uh you've taken the company from zero to a million dollars in revenue now how do you take it from one to ten oh, from one to ten so i mean that's acquiring other companies probably be the easiest fastest oh, way it's on. never been a i've never had that answer before that's <laughs> I mean, super interesting yeah think about it though like if you're at x revenue and you need more revenue you find a distressed company that um makes sense that you could so acquire much more <laughs> <laughs> it's very smart it's a very good it's very good you know what you know you're like the perfect kind of lazy you know why <laughs> because it's like even when you start something out, it's like you just tap into. No, it's it's smart as hell. Like you go into existing audiences, yeah. and that's where you bring your customers. You're not fucking grinding and like trying to find everything yourself. I mean, there'll, you, there'll still be a grind. To there's it, a lot of sure. grind to it, but yeah. I mean, you wanna you wanna increase your revenue. Buy a company that's distressed, that's already selling into your market, and then all of a sudden you're adding revenue and you're adding customer base and you're adding these things that, okay, you can get them yourself, but it's gonna be so much more expensive, so much more time consuming. Yeah. You just did the Very whole smart. zero to one. Why now, do it again? Now I'm actually thinking about. <laughs> no, okay. Now your wheels are turning. Yeah, a little bit. That's very, very smart. Um, as you as you grow, uh, you mentioned a few things about like redefining uh, success in your own life. As you grow your company, um, 
maybe day one success is uh, metric driven, financially driven, whatever that is. And then it changes in the entrepreneur's life. Uh, how do you manage like massive scaling, burnout, all the other, basically the dark side of entrepreneurship? Oh man. Um... And, and like for yourself, was there, was there rock bottoms in your journey Absolutely. and what did that look like? What happened? What led to that? 100%. Overextend yourself working to like all like walk me through like that story. Yeah. So, you know, the saying that it's lonely at the top. Well, the reason why it's so lonely at the type top is because you have no one that you can vent to. And I'll tell you what I mean by this. So a lot of times in the journey as an entrepreneur, there'll be times where you're like, oh, my God, I only have like four months left in the bank. And it's obviously that's stressful. And, you know, now when I look back and I talk to other entrepreneurs, I'm like, okay, that was a pretty normal mm -hmm. thing to go through. But in the time, you don't think it's normal. You're just like, oh my God, this roller coaster. And so um, you have no one to vent to because if you vent to your co-founders, that's not productive. If you vent to your investors, that's obviously not productive. But it, but it, should, it should be well, if you have the right yes, investors. Yeah, it depends on the investors, right? Yeah. Um, if you, you, and you certainly, you cer not, certainly cannot um, vent to your team members, right? You are a leader. You have to show up every single day. You wake up, you put a smile on your face and you walk into that office and you act like everything's fine. And which can be frustrating because then someone will come into your office with this problem that's so irrelevant and you just have to, <laughs> that, that you're like in the back of your mind, you're like, this place isn't going to be here in two yeah. months if this doesn't work out. So yeah, uh-huh, sure. We'll, we'll address your, your, your problem here. And, um, so, so not having anything to vent to. And for my case personally, I couldn't even come home and vent to my husband, right? Because that wasn't productive either. Like there was a period and of why time. Not? Why not? Oh, cause we would go through these downward spirals. There was this period of time where it like, I would cry myself to sleep and he'd be the rock. And then the next day he'd, just, he'd be like, okay, I cried. You cried yesterday. I was the rock. Now it's my turn. And then he'd cry. And then it was just like this cycle of depression, not to mention neither one of us were ever home. I mean, he traveled 190 days out of the year. I probably traveled maybe 80 to 90 yeah. days out of the year. We were, there were times where we were both gone out of the house. Um, and our kids were just with staff and we were both like, he was on the West coast. I was somewhere in central. And I remember there was a point where we had gone four months without having a proper sit down meal together. Because even on the weekends, when we flew back to the house, we were still entertaining. We were still like, remember we had raised um, six million between friends and family. So we were still, you know, having dinners with our investors. We were still giving them updates. And so we were always on, right? Not to mention, we still had these other companies that mm -hmm. were still kind of running the background in our portfolio. So we never got a break. And so um, the other thing about success is the more successful you become, the more ambivalent people show up in your life. And that is extremely stressful because mentally you know how to deal with a good person you know how to deal with a toxic person a toxic person that's easy to, to detect but the ambivalent person to some certain extent they do care about you and you care about them but when push comes to shove you don't know how they really feel about you you don't know if they're really rooting for you or if they're just waiting for a moment for you to be vulnerable so that they can stab you in the back and this created a whole 
like just I'm just now getting over this of paranoia that I, I was going to say it sounds years. very paranoid. Yeah, it, it did because. But what do you so I even want to unpack that because that's interesting. When you say that, when you say that there's these people that come into your life that are waiting to stab you in the back, in what way could somebody not stab just you? Stab, I'm not, let me rephrase that. Not stab you in, in your back, but ambivalent people show up the more successful you become because you are in a place of power influence. Maybe they want access to your Rolodex. Maybe they want you to hire them. Maybe they want you to be their business partner in their mm. next endeavor. So they're never authentically showing up to talk to you for you. They always want something from you, right? And you and those type of people, they're hard to identify because maybe they do care about you or maybe they're just around because of the position that you're in or maybe, you know, you're their boss and they have to be nice to you. And so that mental drainage of trying to figure out, okay, do they really, like, are we really cool? Or are they, yeah. they just want me for something? They want me to invest in something. Are they, and so that is very mentally draining. Um, and so how do you find those people? Oh, they, I mean, it's, how do you protect yourself from those people? How do you protect yourself from those people? Um, you know, it's, it's tough. It, it's kind of tough to identify, but now I'm at a place where if I'm looking at a business opportunity or an investment opportunity, um, I'll ask to go out to lunch or dinner with their spouse, with them and their spouse, because how someone treats their spouse says a lot about their character. Um, if they are disrespecting their spouse, their own spouse, the mother of their children, uh, or the father of their children, believe me, they'll disrespect you too. If they badmouth their family members in front of you and you just met, red flag. Um, and you know, if this person is talking bad about their own family members, God knows what they say about you when you walk out the door. So there's those little things that mm. you could do. And then, I mean, obviously you're never going to be fully protected, but I guess some of the better ways to cope with all of these things that you experience when you become to a certain point in your career um, is to just find somebody that has absolutely no ties to your company or to you or to your um, it, the, anything. And, and that is the person, and not, not someone from your industry, um, but somebody that you can just vent to. And that, that person may not have all the answers, but just the simple act of talking about your problems out loud can really help you. And you can find these people either at mastermind groups that are other entrepreneurs that are going through a similar mm -hmm. thing that you're going to. It could be a counselor or a mentor, but just find that person to vent because venting goes a long way. Do you, do you suggest that that person isn't your spouse? No. No. no, I'm saying it should be it, someone else it, it uh, should, other than you. It your. should be someone that has absolutely no ties to your business so that they have unbiased an unbiased ear to listen. I love that. That's really good advice. Um, I'm now I'm thinking a lot. You're giving me a lot to think about now. It's very good. Uh, another thing that I thought was a very interesting point, um, and it would be good for, again, people that are parts of the show have, have been good for people that are just building, but then there's people that are in very, very specific situations, very similar to yours and, and like have a spouse and, and they're building things with or around their spouse. So I'm not even alluding to me. Like, I mean, like <laughs> I am, but this is not why the question is coming up. So I'm going to like preface to that. But um, obviously you went through a super difficult time. I mean, not, yeah. not in terms of like your relationship, but just in terms of stress. Oh no, that, that put a lot of stress so, on our relationship. So how yeah. did you, I mean, I know he's still around, 
Yeah. So, so, so like, how did you navigate? Like, what did you do yeah. that allowed that to be, I mean, manageable? Oh, God. I mean, it was awful. There was a period of time that it was like Leo and I, since the day that we met, we were always rock solid um, in our relationship and our communication. But there was a period of time that all the stress uh, that came with with our last company that really put and, and the fact that we just physically weren't in the same state at the same time, that it put a lot of stress on us. But when I look back on all that, I am so grateful for that journey because it has made us, us that much stronger. Um, but I mean, being open and honest, like, yeah, we went to marriage counseling. We talked it out. We just consistently tried to put on our schedule date night. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we eliminated things out of our life that was a, like a blocker. Like if, if there was something like a, a project that we were working on or an investment that was taking up any extra time from our family life, we were just like, you know what? I don't care what the, the upside could come from this. It's just, it's a distraction on us. You cut it. And we cut it out. Hmm. We took a break. Do you have advice for people um, that are, are single building and they're looking for somebody in their life and then they, and they would love to have a relationship like what you had, but maybe past relationships haven't worked out. Um, the spouse uh, or the partner hasn't really understood the entrepreneurial person that they are. How do you find somebody that is okay with this? Um, so I feel like no one can really get this right. It's very yeah, hard. We're lucky. The best thing I could say is work on yourself, right? Because if you're constantly working on yourself and you identify um, what's important to you, your values and the type of lifestyle you want to have, the clear, the more clear you will be when you meet that other person um, and you'll engage with them if they're all also on the same path, right? So like when I first met Leo, we obviously had very similar goals, but aside from our business goals, we were both very spiritual and we always both believed in giving back. He and I both were big brothers, big sisters, mm. like, and we both volunteered. And that was not something that we discussed prior or like, we just both did that. Like, so we both had that, like, you know, that want and need to give back. Um, so when I found out that he wanted to become a big brother, that was when I knew he was the one for me. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is it. That was when I was crystal clear that this is the man that I'm going to marry. We'd already been dating for a while, but that was when I was crystal clear. So um, I guess always constantly work on yourself, know your values, know what you want, and you will attract the person that. That emulates that. that. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah. Okay. And if not, because there's, you know, yeah. <laughs> maybe just you know, work on things together. And when you're working on yourself, ask your boyfriend or girlfriend, Hey, I'm, I'm doing this, you know, self-development journey. Come with me mm -hmm. and see what happens. No, it's good. And I, I like to touch on that because I mean, we can talk about like business tactics all day, but then all the other ancillary things that come with entrepreneurship that are maybe not discussed enough. So like the mental health and well-being, relationships, stress, burnout, um, like even when then you become successful, people coming into your life that shouldn't be there are not good for you. Strained relationships with existing people that were in your life that now don't understand that you're in a new spot financially. And that could be also difficult as well. So all these different things that are never really discussed when it comes to entrepreneurship. So I just 
I appreciate the input like a lot actually. Um, okay. So, uh, I would say we went through most everything that I want to go into. Is there anything that we didn't go into that you wanted to go into? Um, looks at her. Looks at her notebook. <laughs> 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 I don't know. I didn't even see what you wrote down. No, no, we went through all the, the okay, good. Ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have any last advice? Like, floor is yours. Any last advice for an entrepreneur or somebody who is like younger in their career journey? Um, what would you tell them? Face the hard truth instead of living in ignorant bliss. And what I mean by that is, you know, when it's time to do a round of layoffs and you're like telling yourself, no, no, I'll figure it out. We'll figure out the revenue. Um, you know, when that business partner that you're thinking about going to business with has red flags, you know, when that relationship is not conducive for what you want out of life. You know these things, but you ignore it because you have this ignorant bliss and you just, you're hoping for the best. Um, and you also know as an entrepreneur, there comes a time when you need to either sell or stop a company, shut down a company and cut your losses. You know when that's there, just do it. Just face the hard truth. I love that. And I bet that if anyone's listening to this, like when you said that one line, everyone thought of something in their life. So that's what you have to do. <laughs> Whatever it is that you just thought of when you heard that. Um, where can people connect with you? So now you can re, re, retell over all the socials and the website. Yeah. And and I guess because you have a foundation, you have this uh, uh, financial literacy course program. Mm -hmm. So tell people where they can go for all the different things. Yeah. So um, the, so by the way, the course that well, the the Miami-Dade College um, program, that financial literacy program that we're launching, that is going to be online and anyone can log in from, you don't have to actually live in Miami, um, but it's, it will be live on the Miami-Dade College continuing education registration site. Uh, for more information, um, that hasn't been posted yet, but if you want to follow us at Ariana Pareja, A-R-I-A-N-A, P-A-R-E-J-A on Instagram. I'll be posting updates as well as on our other Instagram account, which is at Pareja Family Foundation. Um, and then our website, parejafoundation.org. Awesome. Okay. And last question I ask everyone after your journey, after your success and your failures and everything, what does success mean to you? Success means... <sighs> success means to me to have and to accomplish the goals that you you in that period of time in your life had set out, right? Because as I mentioned earlier, the definition of success will change for you mm -hmm. as you evolve. But seeing it through, seeing it through, whatever that goal is that you have at that time of your life, to see it through. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. 
Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink 
what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much, Indeed, for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 